Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 44. Um, this week, we're going to be finishing up the book of Luke, starting in chapter 12, and getting into the first couple of chapters in the book of John. Now, last week, we left off with discussion on the opposition that Jesus was encountering by the religious leaders. It's in this atmosphere of opposition that he turns to the larger crowd in chapter 12 and begins to preach to them. His message includes a mixture of topics. He warns the crowds against the hypocritical teachings of the Pharisees. Jesus wanted his disciples to be free from unnecessary anxiety as they faced opposition and persecution for their faith. So to remove it from them, he reminded them first that life consists of more than material possessions. Second, he told them that worry is foolish because it cannot effectively change anything. Third, he noted that worry characterizes even the Gentiles or the pagans. And then he encouraged them with a reason not to fear, namely that God would give them the kingdom. Finally, he urged them to transfer their assets from heaven to earth, as it were. This would give them immediate peace as well as eventual reward. Now, the teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching of his disciples continue without a break. It goes from one thing to the next. However, the subject here shifts from ceasing to be anxious about material possessions to being ready for the Son of Man's coming. Freedom from anxiety can often lead to laziness, as you might experience Jesus did not want his disciples to be lazy, but to prepare for his future return. And so he taught them this lesson with two parables, one about the importance of being ready and the other about the importance of being faithful. Faithfulness was especially needed because intense persecution was on the horizon, as he says there in the end of chapter 12. Now, moving into chapter 13, apparently messengers from Jerusalem had just arrived with two pieces of news. Pilate's harsh sacrilegious treatment of the Galileans in reaction to their resistance to Roman intrusion and the collapse of a Siloam Tower that killed 18 people. And so Jesus commented on these current events to illustrate the need to repent in order to escape divine judgment. You know, whether people are killed in conflicts or natural disasters does not indicate degrees of sinfulness as they kind of thought during that day. However, repentance is necessary for everyone who hopes to escape the judgment of God. And so then Jesus tells them a very insightful parable there in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9 of the fig tree to explain why the judgment has not come yet. The fig tree was a common Old Testament symbol for the nation of Israel. The owner had every right to expect figs on a fig tree, but the lack of fruit warranted the destruction of the tree. The three-year time frame kind of parallels the time that Jesus had been ministering in Israel. The worker suggested that they wait an extra year in hopes of finding fruit on the tree. And if no fruit resulted, then the tree would be cut down. In a similar fashion, God extends his grace to people. But if people still reject him, judgment is on the horizon. Next we find in chapter 13, verses 20, excuse me, verses 10 through 21, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. And as he was teaching, he healed a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. Jesus rebukes the synagogue ruler because the ruler is showing more concern for the Sabbath observance than for the human suffering that this lady had undergone. And opposition to Jesus is, is ongoing here. But that doesn't stop him from teaching about the coming kingdom. Jesus tells two parables to highlight the growth of the kingdom that would occur. As he continued pressing towards Jerusalem, the problem of unbelief was introduced when someone asked Jesus if only a few people would be saved. Jesus taught that many would not be saved because they will fail to come the right way or will delay until it's too late. And by the way, the presence of Gentiles in the kingdom chapter 13, verse 29, and the exclusion of some Jews demonstrated that salvation is by faith, not by birthright. 
But the comment that the last will be first and the first will be last indicated that we might be surprised to see who will be in the kingdom. The rejection of Christ comes kind of to a climax here at the end of chapter 13, and you find four major truths are included in these verses, in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. First, Jesus wanted the people to accept his offer of himself as the Messiah and believe his message. Second, judgment would fall on the house of Israel because they rejected him. That term house is kind of an umbrella term used in reference maybe to the temple, the city, or the nation as a whole. Third, the Messiah would leave for an undefined period of time before he returns later. And of course, that undefined period of time is the time that we're living in right now called the church age. Fourth, the Messiah would not return to the nation until they repented and prepared themselves to welcome him properly. You know, the postponement of the kingdom was official, and the root of Israel's rejection really laid with her leaders as Jesus lays at their feet. And that leads you right into chapter 14, where Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. Now, in this case, as well as the other healing on the Sabbath, the leaders were willing to save their animals while ignoring the hurting people in their communities. Did you recognize any similarities with our current culture here? When animals become more important than people, the values of the culture are inverted, and all kinds of pervasion, or perversion excuse me, results. By their misunderstanding of the Mosaic Law and their misapplication of it, the nation rejects Jesus. Ironic, isn't it, that in the law, God chose to substitute an animal for the nation as an atoning sacrifice. The generation of Christ's day had lost sight of the very imagery that best instructed them on how to look for the coming Messiah, as you heard, you know it, you know the term, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, while at dinner, Jesus also gave a lesson on the importance of humility. When guests... Um, uh, when guests are attending a wedding, they shouldn't seek the place of honor. Jesus says, for they will be rebuked. Rather, they should show humility. Being invited to a banquet pictured the calling of people to the kingdom. However, in the parable Jesus gives, all three men who were invited to the banquet gave excuses as to why they couldn't come. Eastern banquets were not to begin until all the tables were filled. And so because the three men rejected the invitation to the banquet, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these outcasts of society, they were invited to take the seat of those who would not attend. Because Jesus' message of the kingdom was rejected by those whom it was initially offered to, it was extended to the outcasts. These would include all the Gentiles. Now, chapter 14 finishes up with some teaching of Jesus on discipleship. Jesus invited all who were following him to a life of committed discipleship, and he stressed two key characteristics of what it means to be committed disciples. One must love Christ with a supreme and an incomparable love, and one must be willing to recognize the true ownership of his or her possessions. Now, chapter 15 contains three stories that are all viewed as one parable. Jesus told these parables and answers to the Pharisees and scribes' question as to why Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. Jesus shared his Father's heart in rejoicing over the recovery of even one sinner. Shepherds in verses 3 through 7, unmarried maidens in verses 8 through 10, and rebellious sons in verses 11 through 32 were examples of this type of disenfranchised people who were excluded by the religious establishment of the day, of the day, excuse me. But Jesus did not exclude them. He always went back for them. Now in chapter 16, Jesus warns about the dangers of riches. In fact, in the first 13 verses here, Jesus is instructing his disciples about their use of material possessions. He taught them to be prudent in use of wealth, but also to be aware of the danger of loving it. 
Jesus said money is a minor issue in life, but it's loaded with implications. How a person handles money indicates whether he or she will be faithful or unfaithful in other areas of life. That's according to verse 10. Now, the Pharisees, who were listening to Jesus' instructions to his disciples, kind of scoffed at him because they tried to serve both God and money. Verse 13, they had tried to do both. Um, And they tried to appear pious at the same time accumulate all the wealth they could. Jesus, therefore, addresses their greed in the remaining part of the chapter. And Jesus began his response to the Pharisees' rejection of his teaching by pointing out the importance of submitting to God's word. Then he uses a parable to further explain like he normally does. This is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, this is not the Lazarus who was the brother of Mary and Martha. In this parable, the rich man and his brothers who did not listen to Moses and the prophets represent the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees believed in a future life and a coming judgment, but they, as the rich man, did not allow those beliefs to deter them from the pursuit of present wealth in this life. So giving Lazarus a name helps to personalize him and encourages readers to sympathize with him and to condemn the rich man's callousness. It's not simply being wealthy, Jesus is, is, is saying, but it's the callousness towards the suffering poor which is condemned in the parable. Now, by pursuing wealth hypocritically, the Pharisees had turned many of their fellow Jews away from Jesus. Jesus now warned the disciples about the possibility of their own improper actions and attitudes in chapter 17. A servant does not offend the younger in the faith, and a servant knows that everything done for God should be carried out in humility. This is an important part of their attitudes and actions, Jesus says. The story of the ten lepers here also shows another quality of a servant, that of gratitude. But there's more here. The one man that returned to thank Jesus was a Samaritan rather than a Jew of the lepers. The other nine who did not return were Jews. The Jews had more knowledge about the Messiah and his coming than the Gentiles, the quote, foreigners, did. They should have recognized who Jesus was and expressed their gratitude as well. The story also illustrates that the Jews were happy to receive the benefits of Jesus' ministry without thanking him or connecting his goodness with God or with God's plan of a Messiah. Now, the second half of chapter 17 and into chapter 18, the Pharisees come to Jesus with questions about the kingdom. Jesus first gives a short answer to the Pharisees in chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. He says, both John the Baptist and Jesus had preached for some time that the kingdom was at hand. Probably they asked it to discredit Jesus, who now spoke of the kingdom as postponed. Uh, The kingdom was already there in the person of the king. If they had believed on him, the kingdom would have begun shortly, uh, shortly, immediately after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the tribulation, and then his return. But they didn't. Now, Jesus gives a longer answer to his disciples about the kingdom. So he gives a brief answer to the Pharisees, but now he kind of lengthens his conversation for the benefit of his disciples in verses 22 to 37. The disciples would desire to see the kingdom come because they would experience persecution before Jesus returned, something they kind of still weren't understanding. There would be many false alarms about his return. But, this, but his disciples should not allow others to mislead them. Jesus' return would be unmistakable. However, before the Son of Man begins his reign, he first had to suffer and experience rejection by the unbelieving Jews of his day. When Jesus does return, however, the sudden destruction resulting in judgment comes with him. Some will be ready for his return. Others will not be ready. 
While awaiting his return, persecution and opposition would come. Therefore, Jesus instructs his disciples to be persistent in praying to God for protection against those who would oppose him. They are to persevere in prayer. That's a sign of their faith. Now, from chapter 18, verse 9 to chapter 19, verse 27, Luke develops this theme of faith on earth that Jesus introduced. Essentially, this section records Jesus' teaching that salvation and entrance into the kingdom come by God's grace through faith rather than by claims to legal righteousness. Okay. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote about the process of justification, but that's not what Luke's concern is here. Luke's concern was the recipients of it, who was going to get it, or who was going to receive the grace and get into the kingdom. So the focus on this section is one who would accept salvation in the kingdom. First, there would be those who would accept the message or reject it, as demonstrated in the parable, chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. The parable is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Those are the first two people. Second, humility was needed in chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, and it's the children or the childlike faith that is necessary. So the children there are the characters. Third is the rich man. He's a character here who wants to work his way to heaven, but salvation has always been a free gift of the sacrifice of the Son. The fourth character here are the disciples, but they would have to go through trials and tribulations as Jesus would before entrance into the kingdom would be granted. Fifth, you have here a blind beggar, another outcast like the tax collector, who experienced salvation due to his faith, even though he was not able to see Jesus. And then sixth, you have the classic example of Zacchaeus in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And Zacchaeus's response to Jesus is what should have been the normal response to Jesus. In many ways, he is a culmination of all that we have previously mentioned. He is the ideal response to Jesus. Now, the parable of the talents in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, bring to a conclusion this section of the recipients of salvation. Luke's focus has been on the recipients, you know, the tax collector, the rich man, the blind man, Zacchaeus, etc. Most of the people who believed on Jesus expected it expected um, the kingdom to arrive when Jesus reached Jerusalem. So Jesus gave this parable to kind of dispel those hopes, the point being that during his absence from earth, his disciples had jobs to do. They were commissioned to take the gospel to all parts of the world like we are today. And Jesus constantly reminded his disciples of his plan, but it, it seems like they still just don't get his plan that he's going to have to suffer first. Now from chapter 19, verse 28 through chapter 23, excuse me, the shift now focuses to the passion of the Christ. The suffering and sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of Man, has now come as we find him in Jerusalem. So from chapter 19, verse 28 to 44, is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, there were mixed feelings about him. Jesus knew that it was necessary for him to have his triumphal entry so that he could present himself publicly to Israel. Of course, we know that the nation had rejected him, but he still had to go through with the triumphal entry to fulfill prophecy. From 19 verse 45 through 2138, Jesus debates with the religious leaders mainly over his authority. Because the leaders did not have a solid case against Jesus, nor were they able to disprove his claims, they tended to ask him questions that were difficult to answer. They also put him in situations that were difficult uh, as well, so they might catch him saying something heretical or maybe something offensive. Ironically, the strategy of the religious leaders backfires, as they are the ones who look bad, not Jesus. Now, as you move into chapter 22, we learn that the Jewish authorities did not have a case against Jesus. Therefore, they were rather happy that Judas came forward and agreed to betray Jesus. 
right after Judas' agreement to take part in the scheme there in the first part of chapter 22, we find all the disciples here assembled in the upper room. And as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he also tells them that one among them will betray him. But after the disciples begin to argue about this, after, after Jesus says this, the disciples begin to argue about who will be the greatest in the kingdom, a topic that was entirely inappropriate for the current time. But Jesus calmly, however, uses the opportunity to teach them the importance of humility again. The plot to kill Jesus kind of reaches its fruition when Jesus is arrested by his enemies right after his prayer in the garden. Jesus is then taken before the Sanhedrin, and now his trials begin. So from 22 verse 54 through 23 verse 25, Jesus would go through a total of six trials before he would die on the cross. Three of those trials were before Jewish authorities, and three of those were before Roman authorities. Now Luke here records five of them, admitting the first one before Ananias, the high priest, the Jewish high priest. Of course, the trials themselves were not real trials. They were mockeries of justice. They should have never taken place, nor was there enough evidence to take place, let alone convict Jesus. However, the sacrifice for the sins of the world, Jesus, was finally condemned and sentenced to death on the cross. And even as Jesus is being led to death, he still warned the nation of Israel of coming judgment. And even on the cross itself, Jesus' concern for others was seen as he speaks encouraging words to the repentant thief beside him. Now, moving into chapter 24, which is the last chapter of the book of Luke, this chapter can aptly be titled, uh, The Final Authentication of Jesus, the Son of Man. The first 14 verses of chapter 24 are all, are all about the empty tomb. There can be no doubt that the resurrection of Jesus permeates the entire New Testament and that it is the foundation on which the Christian faith is built. Perhaps one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is seen in this chapter alone. I'm speaking of the radical change in the life of the disciples who go from depression to joy and from fear to boldness. That Jesus appears to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, a classic story that we only find in the book of Luke. And we believe it happened on the Sunday evening of the resurrection day. These two disciples were rebuked by Jesus for their failure to allow the scriptures to influence their thinking. These disciples had failed to do that. They were also slow to believe that they did not know that the former prof- what the former prophets had revealed. They had overlooked the prophecies about the Messiah having to suffer, preferring rather to focus on only those prophecies that predicted his glorification. Their error here constitutes a warning for all subsequent disciples. I wonder what the conversation would have been like when Jesus began to teach them about the Old Testament. In essence, Jesus told them, did y'all forget what the Old Testament said about me? Now, we know all Scripture is profitable, and we should not slight any part of it, but we should strive for a comprehensive understanding of its teaching. If these disciples had understood and believed what the Old Testament revealed, then, would, then they would not have felt depressed, but they would have been full of joy because they would have known what is still yet to come. Now, the book of Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus. The Lord's earthly ministry was over. And now God, who had taken on the form of man more than 30 years before, ascends back up to heaven. It's interesting here because Luke began and ended his gospel in the temple. But what a change has taken place here. The old covenant had been set aside, and the new covenant had now been established. Now that brings us to the end of Luke, and I understand that we skipped a lot of stuff. Sometimes going through a survey of some of these materials, you miss a lot of things. Um, But 
I'm hoping you're getting the big picture about the life and ministry of Christ because as we move into the book of John, which we're really going to focus on next week, you're going to see a different perspective of the life of Christ because John, um, who was one of the disciples who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, he writes his gospel account much later in life. Um, Some people say 30 or 40 years after uh, the first couple of Gospels are written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John writes his Gospel. So he reflects back on the ministry of Christ in a different way. It's very much more theological, uh, more of what Christ said and why he came than necessarily what he did. See, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been really giving us the story, giving us the narrative, giving us the flow, giving us the timeline. Now, John does give us some of those things, but John focuses a lot more on what Jesus says than actually what he does. And so that's a distinction. Now, we're going to pull out the distinction when we talk about John. And unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about John. I know you'll get into a few chapters of John this week, um, but I'm going to wait until next week so we can begin fresh the week talking about John. And then before you know it, we'll be finished with the Gospels and head into the book of Acts and to see what Jesus does, excuse me, see what Jesus' followers do as they take the message of the gospel to the remote parts of the earth. So that's all for this week. Email any questions you have to BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.